A lot of you have been asking me for insomnia treatment options, so I want to let you know I have launched an insomnia treatment course. It's a very structured and effective treatment program with a lot of clinical evidence support. So one course is in Chinese and one is in English. You can find it at deepintosleep.co/insomnia. I remember earlier this year, for a while, I could not sleep very well. I feel really tired during the day, so I went to complain to my friends. They really care about me, so they asked, "Are you stressed out?" I was like, "Ah,、uh, I think there may be some stress, but not very significant." Then some of them asked, "Are you depressed?" I was like, "I don't think so." And then they keep on suggesting maybe there's something going on with anxiety, depression. Maybe you should go to see a doctor. Or a therapist? I am really happy they cared about me, but I was also confused. Yes, I did not sleep well, but how did that link to mental disorder so quickly? What I was looking for really just some support, and I just want to hear them say, "Oh, sorry to hear about that. Are you okay? Are you taking care of yourself?" I totally did not expect all the other concerns and questions. This actually is normally how many of us understand sleep symptoms. So the question is: Is there a better way to understand sleep problem, and a better way to treat it? Today it's my honor to have Dr. Colleen Carney, a top sleep specialist in Canada, to help us decode sleep, especially insomnia. Dr. Carney is associate professor and director. Of the Sleep and Depression Lab at Ryerson University, Toronto, Canada, she's also currently the president of the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapy, Insomnia and Other Sleep Disorders Special Interest Group. She has written multiple books about sleep. She and her team also developed a free sleep app for teenagers called Doze. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. I'm your host Ishan. Excited to find out what Dr. Carney can share about. Let's go. Dr. Carney, welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so excited to、uh, get to interview you because you live in Canada, and all the way we I think we crossed the whole country now to connect. Oh yeah, yeah. It's、uh, I'm really excited to be on here today. I know you are actually a leading expert in the、um, sleep field, to especially treating insomnia. Yes, I'm most interested in insomnia. I, I mean, I I had general sleep medicine training throughout my career, but I've always really stayed in insomnia and. I'm most interested in when we have insomnia and other problems. You know, whether it be Arthritis or other medical problems,、uh, mental health problems. Those are the things that have really kept.、Um, I've been passionate about in my career. Yeah, that's actually very interesting、um, because I noticed first. I noticed in Asian population, especially in China where I grew up, a lot of doctors would say, "Oh, if you have insomnia, they would think, 'Well, you must have 
anxiety or depression or some other problem, those possibly are the primary reason for your insomnia. Let's target those. Let me give you medication. I think from my training, my understanding here, it's not always the case. What do you think about that? When I think about the U.S. and even Canada, there are still people who view that view it this way. And I really think that it's been in the last certainly 10 years. I mean, 20 would probably be generous to say that people are starting to look at the data and say, oh, there is far more evidence that insomnia is primary and causes other problems to occur than the other way around. When I got into this area, that was one of my primary goals was to educate people and convince people to some extent that it can be a symptom of another disorder, but it is most often at least a co-occurring comorbid disorder worthy of its own treatment attention. And in fact, I guess some of my main research that I've ever done has really been in, well, what happens if you ignore insomnia and what happens if you treat insomnia? So I think that we still have a ways to go. I know that we do because when I submit a grant or an article, I will still get every, every once in a while a comment and they'll use words like primary and secondary insomnia, which are pretty dated terms. Like we don't use things like that anymore. There will be this bias, this very dated bias from you know decades ago that this is the way that insomnia is. I don't know what the current prevailing thought in China is about this, but I think worldwide, people have made lots of strides, which I'm really grateful for in understanding because um, insomnia causes quality of life problems in and of itself. And to have that ignored when it's actually an independent predictor of suicide is a travesty. And also there's so much data that says that if we do treat it, we can actually help the other condition particularly in my area where with depression, I mean, we can get even depression remission. So I think what you observed um, in China many years ago is what I started my whole career off with um, seeing on a daily basis, but I've seen it get better. Great. So for the audience, for everyone out there who may not know much about this field, sounds like it's very important for us all to really pay attention and take insomnia seriously to also keep the hope up. No, there are great treatment out there and we can actually directly treat insomnia. Yeah, I think anybody who is suffering from insomnia and not being taken seriously from their healthcare professional and it's constantly blamed on whatever other condition is going on or perhaps even mislabeled. There's many patients who will come to me and say, I've been told I have depression, but I don't, I really feel like I, I don't have depression, but I, I keep getting told this and I'll do an assessment and there's no depression. I think there's several tricky things here. One is that the daytime symptoms of insomnia overlap greatly with other mental health problems. And so when somebody hears something like I have, I'm moody, I'm tired and I can't sleep, their brain automatically goes to depression. Depression is one of those disorders that have to have one of two complaints in order to even consider depression. And that is you have to have depressed mood, not just moody, depressed mood for most of the day, for nearly every day, for at least a two-week period, or 
difficulty getting any sort of pleasure out of doing things that you normally would be able to do. You have to have one or two of those in order to even think about depression. So in that first instance, when somebody was moody, tired, and couldn't sleep, our brain shouldn't have actually even gone to depression because they don't have those cardinal symptoms. And yet that's where a lot of clinician brains go. We have lots of evidence to say that, that they get steered in the, in the wrong direction. I find this too with older adults. With older adults, we know that to some extent, they start to phase advance, which means they get sleepy earlier and they wake up spontaneously earlier. And this is part of the aging process. And so what can happen with some older adults is that when they start getting sleepy earlier, they're creatures of habit. So they still want to keep their same bedtime they've had all those years, you know, watch the news and then go to bed. But what they find is, is that they are dozing off an hour or two earlier than that. They don't consider that sleep. And then when at one point or another, they'll wake up and notice the TV's on and, oh, I'll go off to sleep and they go off to sleep. And then they'll start waking up at four o'clock in the morning and can't get back to sleep again. Really, when I look at when they're actually falling asleep, you know, it's like 9, 30, 10, and they're waking up at 4, 4, 30, they really have had a bout of sleep. It's just that it's been partially on the couch and, and not intended. <laughs> but the problem is, is if they're going to go to their family care doctor and they say, you know, gosh, I'm tired and I wake up early and I can't get back to sleep. There is a built-in bias that many people think that early morning awakenings is a sign of depression and it actually isn't. And so when they hear early morning awakenings and they're very tired, then they get put on an SSRI or an antidepressant medication, which is tricky because that could make the problem worse. And, you know, they're now on an extra medication and in the older adults, that's we always want to minimize medications because there's, there's often many different medications for multiple conditions. So here are just a few circumstances in which people have reached out for help and they've been given help for a different problem that they don't actually have that can actually make it worse. I do think that we need to do a better job training what depression is and what insomnia disorder is because the last DSM, I'm, I actually love the latest DSM. I think I'm one of the few people because <laughs> the other disorders are not happy, but in sleep, now that we, we have, they're called sleep-wake disorders. And what a wonderful change because sleep disorders are 24-hour disorders. It's the daytime symptoms that really bother people with insomnia. It's not staying up at night. It's when they're staying up at night, they're saying to themselves, oh gosh, how am I going to get through tomorrow? How am I, I'm going to make a mistake tomorrow. And they're really concerned about that. So the sleep-wake disorder title of DSM-5, I think is good, but also now doctors set the bar very low in order to get a diagnosis of insomnia disorder. It gets rid of the silliness of, well, was it insomnia first or, or depression first, or what, what was it first? Because we know that clinicians can't make that determination. And we know that the person who's suffering from the sleep problem often has no idea what came first and we don't treat it any different. It doesn't matter like for the treatment. So we've gotten rid of all of that. So it's actually very easy to get the diagnosis. And I think ultimately DSM-5 is going to be this, is going to be responsible for a change, a, a, a better rate of recognition 
and access to treatment for people just by making a few changes in the diagnostic criteria. Yeah, that's so important to understand and hear that I think a lot of time it's about how we interpret our symptoms, how we feel, how our body reacts, and also how healthcare providers interpret that mm-hmm. and can just guide us to different paths. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I first arrived, um, before I moved to Canada, my first job was at Duke University. And Duke has a wonderful sleep medicine program and, and people come from, from all over to see people. So we, we would see some very interesting cases. And I remember seeing somebody who was there for headaches and she came to me and she said, you know, I'm, I'm here for headaches. And I'd say, well, but tell me about your sleep problem. And she'd say, it's that I have headaches and that my doctor told me I needed to get a handle on the sleep problem in order to get rid of the headaches. And I thought, and, and I said, well, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your headaches. Have you been evaluated for them? Like, uh, is that uh, no, no, the doctor just said I needed to sleep. I said, well, uh, let's take a look. So she monitored sleep for two weeks and there really was no sleep problem. And so here's somebody who um, really needed a workup. So she was referred to neurology and so that her headaches were investigated that a doctor had really decided that she had a sleep problem and that the sleep problem needed to be fixed and was sent to like a, a specialty clinic for sleep without a sleep problem. Um, mm. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, I know from the field wise, and uh, um, it's the training still very limited. And I I interviewed several people who struggle with different sleep problems themselves. Many of them took years to really find a well-trained sleep doctor to diagnose them and eventually get appropriate treatment. So I think that's definitely, we possibly have a long way to go uh, in the field. I agree. I I remember several years ago, I saw this study um, by Charles Moran and his team in Quebec. They um, published data, and there's been other studies to say this too, that the average number of years before somebody actually gets treatment for their insomnia, effective treatment, is over 10 years. That's unacceptable. And for people who are suffering, and it is actually a fairly easy disorder to treat, and it's done fairly briefly. So in terms of, of cost, there are different ways to get the treatment. And, and because it's so brief, it, it can be a manageable cost. The idea that people aren't getting treated for insomnia is unacceptable to me. And it's, and it's really my passion is um, making it more accessible for, for people. Definitely. Well, I did not realize it take. 10 years on average this long, because I heard like narcolepsy, those kind of things, um, it take longer. But I definitely see a lot of people, um, especially in the Asian population, which is I treat mostly, they definitely have no idea they're actually a very effective cognitive behavior treatment for it. A lot of them just be on medication for many, many, many years. Mm-hmm. And they change doctors, they change different medications. It's just not getting better. I think a lot of people may just think, well, it's hopeless. I just possibly going to live with this forever with medication. Yeah. And I I mean, now for some people, medication um, certainly works and it can't even work long term. But for other people, they either don't 
have much of a benefit for the, for the medication or the medication can stop working. In somebody with insomnia who often will develop a fear of sleeplessness, deep down they worry that there's something wrong with their sleep system. So when a medication that was initially working stops working, it feels like confirmation their sleep system really is broken and they've kind of entered a new stage in severity that they've kind of slipped down a level um, rather than it being blamed on the medication, they blame it on their sleep system. And the, the word hopelessness that you used is a good one because oftentimes by the time they see me, they really are pretty scared and, and feeling like it's hopeless. So just as you, when you're spreading the word about other treatments and ones that are effective, like cognitive behavior therapy, my message is not really anti-medication. It's the frontline treatment really should be cognitive behavior therapy because it is more durable than medications. If you want to take medication, that's fine. There are plenty of doctors that will prescribe that. But for other people who either don't want to try it, they can't because they're on too many medications anyway, it's not working for them or stopped working, or they, it's just not something they want to do, then I think cognitive behavior therapy is one of those really great solutions for them because it is very straightforward and quick treatment. Great. Talking about that, uh, CBTI, this method, I really love your book, The Good Night Mind. I think you you wrote that book with Dr. Um, Rachel Member together. And that actually was the first insomnia or CBTI directly method book I read. And then I introduced to a lot of my patients and I posted it uh, in my clinic to make sure people really go to it when they want to know more about how to treat insomnia. Then, um, so overall for this method, how effective that is, how to help people understand and get more buy-in of it. Because I remember when I introduced that book to other people, they never heard about this method. They have no idea, huh? What is this? So as far as how effective it is, the reason why it's the frontline recommended treatment is because it has a lot of data behind it, right? So it's been shown time and time again, that's very effective. It's only effective though for about 80% of the people that use it. And so we still have some work to do to identify for those 20% who are not benefiting, what can we do? So that is another area of research for me and, and trying to figure out for whom it doesn't work well. As far as how I get buy-in, it was interesting when Rachel and I met, wrote that book. At first, we didn't want to write that book because we had finished um, Quiet Your Mind and Get to Sleep. And we really liked that book because that was a collection of all of our kind of worksheets and the things that we did clinically. And we thought, well, this is perfect. And the publisher said, that's great, but not everyone's ready to do a workbook. And they really just need to hear about it. So maybe they're not motivated to do it, but we want a book that would get them motivated to write. And we thought, oh gosh, how are we going to write something like that? So I love that you use it in your clinic to introduce the idea of what it is to sort of get, because that's actually was the purpose of writing it. And we were like, I don't know if this is going to work. And I think that of all the books I've ever written, that's the one that people talk about the most, which I find so funny, but people like that book. And I think it's because it's simple. So buy-in, you know what I like to say to people? I've spent my life learning about the sleep system. 
And we have a lot of good research that tells us how it works. Now, I don't know exactly what caused your particular insomnia. And it sounds like maybe you're, you're not sure either. The good news is, is that no matter what originally caused it, I can almost guarantee you there's some new causes lurking around because your sleep system has adapted to what was initially just a short-term insomnia. And when it does, your body does a variety of things to adjust to that initial sleep disturbance that becomes really problematic. What's really important is you understand that it's not your fault because this is actually what your body does to actually take care of you. So one of the things that happens in the initial stages is that you're going to spend more time awake in bed. That's not your fault. (laughs) That's something that is a byproduct of having the initial insomnia symptoms. But when you spend time awake in bed, that place that normally when you get in that bed, boom, you fall asleep because it's the place where I sleep. Instead, suddenly you get into bed and boom, you're wide awake. And a switch goes off and suddenly you're thinking about things. You, you, you notice that you're really tense and you weren't in that state at all a minute before, before you got into that bed. So the bed can become paired with wakefulness as a result of having insomnia and it gets worse and worse and worse. So I know a trick to get rid of that. So we can talk about that. Um, another thing that happens as a result of having insomnia is that people become tired And they also, in an attempt to solve the situation, tend to spend more time in bed than they used to and less time active because they're tired. I'm going to go to bed early, see if I can cast a wider opportunity to, to, you know, get a little bit more sleep. And when the alarm goes off in the morning, I find them sleeping again. I, I can't get up right now. So I'll just hit this news bar a couple more times. I know that the more time you spend in bed, it sends a message to the sleep system that you actually have less of a sleep need. And that's not what you want. You actually want more. You want to send a message to the body that you have a greater sleep need. And I actually know a trick to send a message to that system so that you can get more sleep and more importantly, more deep sleep, more recovery sleep. So I think that's important. And the last thing that I've noticed in people with insomnia is as a result of what we were just talking about, feeling tired, hitting the snooze bar, going to bed a little bit early, it creates a lot of variability and less activities that send a message to your body clock as to what time it is. That might not sound important, but we actually use our body clock to help us fall asleep at a certain time and get up at a certain time and feel alert during the day. So if that system is kind of fluctuating back and forth, and never really completely regulated, not really having this great, this is what time this happens and this is the time this that happens, then not only can you not use your clock to help you fall asleep and wake up in the morning, but you feel less alert, you feel more fatigued during the day. And I actually know a trick for your clock to become regulated so that you can use it to your benefit for sleep. So if you're interested in learning these couple of tricks to get your body, it's a way of just changing your body, then um, I suggest that we meet um, over the next two to four times. And I'll teach you about it, give you some instruction that you can test it out, see how your body reacts, and then come back in case we have to tweak it. And then by the time we're done, the insomnia should be gone. What do you think? And so I think that's my cell. That's, that's the hardest cell I have. When somebody says, well, that sounds hard and I don't want to do it, then I'll say, well, 
maybe it is too hard for you to do right now. And the reason why I say that is because knowing that eating a certain way and having a certain diet is the way to gain your ideal weight doesn't mean that right now is the time that you're going to engage in that program. And that's okay. And so sometimes hearing what CBT is, is enough to be intrigued, but not to commit to, you know, because it's two months of, of changing some habits. It might not be the right time. And so as much as I believe in this treatment, I never try and sell someone on it. I just give them what it is and then see what they want. And if they say it's not for me right now, then I'm going to cheerlead that decision and support that decision and say, you know what, I'd love to see you again. If this is, if this is still going on, then the door is always open and I'd love to see you another time. Nine times out of 10, they'll say, well, you know, tell me a little bit more about it because they're, they're a little bit curious, but I, and I'm, I'm also not the sleep police. So when somebody says, well, I'll do it, but as long as I'm not, um, you know, you're not going to make me get back into bed if I fall asleep on the couch. And I'll say, well, do you, do you care if you fall asleep on the couch? Like, no. Well then what do I care? It's okay. Well, I'll do it as long as I don't have to do this. Well, I'll say, well, then that's fine. So I'm not the sleep police. I don't make decisions about uh, whether or not people sleep, where people sleep and how would they sleep. But my only goal is if you would like to get rid of chronic insomnia, I've got a few tricks up my sleeve if you're interested. Yeah, I really like it. I, it what you described make me think, wow, sometimes, you know, sleep specialists need to be somewhat of a smart salesman, <laughs> knows when to go forward, when to step a little bit, like what the, the, the patients really need. I like the sleep police analogy you mentioned. It reminded me of uh, some patients I saw, they were like, I'm waiting for you to tell me, stop using my electronic. I would absolutely <laughs> don't follow it. I'm waiting for you to say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The electronics is a great example because there is some excellent research there about blue light and electronics, but there's also quite a lot of research that we really don't know how it applies. You know, most of what we know are in young male undergrads. And young male undergrads, in terms of puberty, they may actually be light sensitive. They probably are light sensitive because teens are with puberty. And they're, they're good sleepers. They recruit good sleepers for these experiments. And then they have them spend the night in the lab so they know what their sleep is like. And then the next morning and all through the day, they keep them in dim light all day. And they do this to stack the deck in favor of getting some activation when they finally show light. And that's not bad research. That's good circadian research. But then when we try to apply it to people, and by the way, what they know in those experiments when their average melatonin release is, when they're going to expose them to blue light in a device, it's not like they're using even one hour. And it's not like they're even using two hours because they can't get that effect reliably. It's got to be three, four, five hours before melatonin is released and they spend all day in the dark and they're photosensitive. So the idea that we would use that information in good sleepers in chronic insomnia when we don't have good chronic insomnia data and we don't have it under naturalistic settings. And by the way, the effect sizes in those studies that I'm thinking about, the, the most typical 
effect that you see is a, is a loss of sleep or a delay in sleep onset or melatonin release of nine minutes. For the amount that we talk about blue lights and electronics, I'm not going to lose a client on the basis of electronics. I'm not going to. First of all, I also know that eyes, as they age, uh, lens is yellow. So, and yellow plus blue light is green. And green is a terrible face shifter. It's been tried in many studies. I also know that older eyes, as they age, um, the um, pupils narrow. So less light information gets in. In older adults, cataracts um, tend to form. And they form for quite a long time before they're detected. And we know that that changes light information as well. So there's many different reasons why electronics shouldn't be the focus. So I love that you don't um, focus too much on it. It's very little of what I would do. Now, with my teens, it's going to be a, a different story because they are light sensitive. But for adults, I care just as much as to what they're using the electronics for. It's not completely about blue light for me. And if blue light was so successful at keeping people up, then we would be using it to keep people up in a variety of different professions. And we can't like, so, I mean, all sleep doctors have been involved in, in um, armed forces research at different times to try and keep people up, put people to sleep, you know, perform under certain circumstances. And we don't have a good, you know, silver bullet that that's going to fix everything. And it's certainly not electronics. We're not going to give the armed forces here, just be on your phone and your soldiers will not fall asleep. It's not going to happen because it's not that powerful. Um, people can use electronics to help them. I have some people who use different meditation apps and all kinds of other things. So it really depends to me what it is that they're using it for. If some people use it for um, communication, but in communication with some individuals that have, you know, maybe they have contentious relationships. And so you have a decent chance of receiving upsetting information before bed. Then I'm just going to be curious about that and say, it just seems like chatting on Facebook with these particular girlfriends seems to turn into some drama. And I'm wondering if you can set some limits on that um, because it doesn't seem to be working. Other people, that's the way that they decompress and they process their day. And it probably is as good as doing like a Penny Baker's writing experiment because they're just processing and getting it all out before they go to bed. So it's not the electronic for me for adults. It's always the ABCs, right? It's like, what's the behavior we're talking about and the consequence? What's the net result? That's what I want to know. And what set it up? What's the antecedent? So I love that you recognize when when clients are trying to set you up, like, well, I just want to, I want to know if if you're gonna be bossy about this or that. I don't fall for that because I'm gonna I I'm gonna go for what I consider to be the lowest hanging fruit with someone. Yeah, I really love that. I, I really like this uh, your approach really meets patients where they are mm -hmm. and still try to deliver the the treatment really fit their uh, readiness and to be able to help them be motivated to do something and slowly move to the right direction. That reminds me sometimes when I meet certain Asian patients, 
they are like, you know, I tried CBTI before. I don't like it. I will tell you, I will not restrict my bedtime. And uh, I will use herbal tea. And it's very important to me. There's certain things like that. But I realized when we be able to understand them and work with them, change will slowly happen. Yeah, I agree. And I, I do, um, you mentioned Rachel Mamber earlier. She, she's somebody who's very, she's at Stanford and it's, you know, a premier sleep facility in the w- world. And Rachel Mamber is somebody who really taught me to uh, meet people where they are. Thinking about a client of mine, because um, you had mentioned an Asian client of yours. I'm thinking about this Asian client of mine who had some beliefs and one of them was uh, napping is a, a nourishing a life nourishing um, activity. I was thinking about that, and I said, "I don't, I don't need to get into an argument about whether it is or it, it isn't. How would either of us really know?" But what I can tell him, and what I what I told him was, "You know, you may be right." He was actually a doctor, so I said, "You know, there's nothing wrong with a cupcake, but a cupcake when you have diabetes takes on a different property." And so you you have to adjust your relationship with the cupcake. And so is it possible that in terms of napping being a life nourishing activity, that just while you have chronic insomnia, it's like the cupcake with diabetes. Like it's something that we might have to set aside momentarily because it. I see the problem with you that your sleep system right now is continuously getting the message not to compensate for the sleep loss. And it's doing it because every time we build up a little bit of drive for recovery, it gets wiped out again with the nap. And so I'm wondering if you're willing to set aside, not the belief because um, you can go back to it after treatment, you can just go back to napping. But if you're willing to set aside for two weeks, the habit, to see if we can trick that system into recovering so that you can go back to enjoying your naps. Is that something you'd be willing to try? And I think so meeting somebody, respecting respecting people's beliefs and, and particularly cultural beliefs that was for him, um, that you can find a way if you put the effort in to make the treatment accessible. And so he did stimulus control exactly the way it's supposed to be but in a way that he felt like it was adapted to him. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think those kind of tailored treatment he perceives can be the most powerful. Thank you very much, Dr. Kearney, for coming to the show, sharing all this wonderful knowledge with our audience. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. It was great. So after listening to this conversation, what is one shocking thing you have learned from this conversation? If you have one, I'd love to hear from you. You're welcome to leave me a comment, email me, or leave a review with your answer. This is the part one of my conversation with Dr. Carney. If you want to find out more about Dr. Carney's work, you can go to her website at drcolleencarney.com. I will also put all her links to her book, to her website, to her phone app, to our show note page at deepintosleep.co. So at the end of 2020, 
I developed a simple online course in Chinese to help you solve the problem of not able to sleep well, especially if you have difficulties falling asleep or staying asleep. If you speak Chinese and you have these kind of problems and want to find a cheap way to intervene, please check out my course on my website at mindbodygarden.com/insomnia. I'm so grateful to have you with me today. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently, and there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk. And our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed. Are you suffering from insomnia? I promise you, the CBTI method in my course will definitely help you. Even if several nights of better sleep, that would be a world-changing experience for you. I have had so many success from my insomnia patients who have taken this course over the years. If you know someone who are struggling with sleep, go to my website and check out my course at deepintosleep.co/insomnia.